Tonight we are on Lesson 4, God's Promise is Fulfilled in Jesus Christ, True God and True Man. Um, Alright, so Lesson 4 um, in your workbook, we're going to be looking at the second article of the Apostles' Creed, and then we're going to be looking, beginning in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, I'll bring that up. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 18. All right, so lesson four, God's promises fulfilled in Jesus, true God and true man. At the top of the page in the blue box, um, we have the second article of the Apostles' Creed. Um, as we've talked about before, a creed is a statement of faith. It's a statement of what we believe. And so the, the Apostles' Creed is probably the earliest one that we have that we use regularly. There are a few similar statements in throughout the Bible that are like statements of faith. Uh, but the Apostles' Creed we use in nearly every worship service. Um, and it's a, it's a quick, easy summary of what do we believe about the true God. Um, we've learned that the true God is triune. That means that he is three persons and one God, and one God and three persons. And those three persons are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet they are not three gods, but one God. And so in the Apostles' Creed, we divide it into three parts that we often call three articles. Um, the first art, because it's an article of faith, um, not like a newspaper article. And the first article is talking about God the Father. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Fairly simple. The second article that we are beginning our look at tonight, or perhaps continuing our look at, um, is about the Son of God. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, um, and the Son of God, who also happens to be the Son of Mary. Um, that's what we're talking about tonight. And so in that blue box at the top of the page, this is from your catechism. Um, it's the second article of the Apostles' Creed with an explanation of what does this mean? Um, so it reads like this, and you can follow along. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. He has redeemed me, a lost and condemned creature, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil not with gold or silver, but with his holy, precious blood, and with his innocent suffering and death. All this he did, that I should be his own, and live under him in his kingdom, and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from death, and lives and rules eternally. This is most certainly true. So, uh, what we're really talking about tonight is the person of of Jesus Christ, who is both true God and true man. And if you're following along in your Bible, um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. It's also up on the screen for you tonight. And the two major points that we're going to, that we're going to understand here from this, we're going to see, or maybe background points. Uh, the first one, Gabriel has already announced to Mary that she would give birth to this, to the Savior, despite being a virgin, meaning there's no, there's no human father involved in this process. Um, because back in Luke chapter 1, the angel appears to 
to Mary and says, Mary, you're going to have a child. And Mary's like, I believe you, but I don't understand how, because, um, I'm, I'm not married. I've, I've never been with a man. And the angel Gabriel said that the power of the most high would overshadow her. And so the one to be born would be called the son of God. Um, so that's kind of the first point. And then the, the counterpoint to that, which we see in tonight's, in this reading from Matthew chapter one, is that an angel assured Joseph that the child to whom Mary would give birth is from God. This is the child that would be the fulfillment of the promise that God made back in the Garden of Eden. If you if you remember that one, uh, maybe we'll flip to that ever so briefly. I think it's in here. There we are. Um, Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, highlighted there in blue. God said to Satan in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve sinned, I will put hostility between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he will crush your head, and you will crush his heel. And so God said there that he's going to put the hatred back where it belongs, between um, not between God and people, but between people and the devil. And the one who would crush Satan's head is this child that Mary is now carrying. All right, so Matthew, that's kind of all in the background. Matthew chapter 1, uh, verse 18 is where we are beginning. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named, gave him the name Jesus. And so that name Jesus, a lot of times in the Bible, these names have, have very um, specific meanings attached. Um, and so when the angel says, you are to give him the name Jesus, uh, the footnote there in this translation, Bible translation at least, tells us that Jesus is the Greek form of Joshua, which means the Lord saves. Um, and that's the application that the, that the angel makes. Name him Jesus, the Lord saves, because he, this Jesus, will save his people from their sins. All right, so far, so good. If you have any questions, uh, feel free to speak up, or you can contact me, of course, pastorhagen at icloud.com. Um, and, and that's for anybody who's watching on, on Facebook or participating in Zoom or watching later on YouTube or listening at the podcast. All right, so Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Number 1, why do you think Joseph planned to divorce Mary when he found out that she was pregnant? Because that's the other thing that's going on here. Um, verse 18, uh, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. That's not 
That's not just engagement. Like they have made a promise to each other and say, yes, I intend to marry you. Um, this is a legally binding thing already. In, in our country, in, in our state, um, this would be the equivalent of signing a marriage license where it's already registered that they are to be bound to one another in marriage and that they legally are already, um, just that they haven't gone through the ceremony and begun their life together. There's still some organization to take care of ahead of time. Um, and before they came together, she was found to be with child. Why do you think Joseph planned to divorce her? He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Well, plain simple. Joseph understands um, how, this, how this generally works. Joseph thought that she had cheated on him. Um, plain and simple. <laughs> And, and I think we talk about the, to the topic of marriage um, in a later lesson, um, but suffice to say, you know, at this point, we understand from the way God has designed marriage that that special relationship between man and woman is reserved for marriage. And so Joseph understands this. And Joseph says, um, if she's cheated on me, then I can't, I can't trust her and I'm not going to bind my life to her um, because it's just not, it's not proper. Um, so that's, that's what's kind of going through Joseph's mind. He's wondering what's going on. I hear she's pregnant. Um, and then this angel, <laughs> this angel shows up. Joseph has a dream. Um, Joseph has a dream a little bit later that night. After he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So number two, what assurance? And she will give birth to a son. You got her to give him the name, the name Jesus. We talked about that part already. Um, the assurance that he has from this angel, in the, that this angel that appears to him in the middle of the night, um, is that this baby is actually from God. That this baby is actually from God. Um, and and that's that's pretty awesome. Not only has Mary not cheated on him, but also um, this baby is going to be a special baby, a special special man who is going to accomplish some wonderful things exactly as God had promised. So number three, um, why, why was that assurance important for both Joseph and Mary? I don't know if we if we've thought about that from that perspective. Maybe you have, um, but the angel says this. I mean, Mary already had that angel appear to her, and now an angel appears to Joseph, and the angel adds some detail that this child who is from God is going to save his people from their sins. Wow, that's that's pretty cool. Um, yes, they, there's no problem with them getting married. There's no division in their relationship. Um, they, it was right and proper for them to give thanks to God for this special blessing, um, this miraculous baby, quite literally. And it would show them that this baby was their savior too. That Jesus, this child who would be born, that this Jesus was one to whom Mary would give birth, a human exactly like her. Um, that's pretty awesome. And it's a reminder, and that's, that's one of the major points of tonight's lesson. It's a reminder that this Jesus is fully human, fully man, um, exactly the same as you or I 
completely per completely human but without sin he's going to be their savior uh, number four the angel told joseph to name the child jesus which is the greek form of the hebrew name joshua both jesus and joshua means the lord saves why is that a fitting name for this child well Jesus would be the one to save all people from sin, death, and hell. And yeah, he would be the one who saves, and he's also the Lord himself um, in the flesh. He's, this isn't just some divine messenger as though God sent an angel or something like that. This is God himself in the flesh, and he is going to be the one who does the saving. Awesome. So number five, Jesus was not simply a man pretending to be God. In the second article of the Apostles' Creed that we read at the top of the page, we confess that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We also heard the angel assure Joseph of this in his dream. What important truth does that teach us about Jesus? Looking at verse 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Um, so what important truth does this teach us about Jesus? That he is conceived by the Holy Spirit, or we call him Emmanuel, which is just a, an um, an Old Testament Hebrew word that means God with us. Um, well, it reminds us that he is God himself. He's not a person pretending to be pretending to be God. He is not another prophet who has been who has been sent um, to to tell us about God. He is God who is going to live with us. Um, the other two passages that we look at with in connection to this um, are right here in John chapter one in John chapter 20. Um, I've got them highlighted on the screen. John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I can make that a little bigger. There we are. He was with God in the beginning. Through him everything was made, and without him not one thing was made that has been made. All right, so we see that he is God. And John chapter 20, then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Take your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue to doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And so that John chapter 20 is on the evening, um, a week after Easter Sunday. So Easter is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And this was a week later. And if you look at uh, John chapter 20 there, Jesus is saying, hey, I have a body. I'm not a ghost. I'm not, I'm not some spirit who's disconnected from life in this world. He says, I'm a person. I have a body and I'm alive. And at the same time, at the beginning of the gospel of John in John chapter 1, um, this word that, that you see capitalized word is, is Jesus. And he is very clearly God at the same time as, yes, at the end of, of John's gospel, he is also man, um, having a human body. 
All right, so number five, uh, what important truth does that teach us about Jesus when we say that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit? It reminds us that he is true God. That comes in handy. <laughs> that is vitally important. Um, because if he is not true God, then, okay, he lives a perfect life and he dies, but that counts for him, but nobody else. If he is true God then his death counts for all people. We'll come around to that in just a little bit here. Uh, number six, Jesus was not God pretending to be a man. This is kind of the reverse of that question. In number five, we had said Jesus was not simply a man pretending to be God. Um, we see that he actually is God. And number six, Jesus was not God pretending to be a man. We confess that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. The angel assured Joseph of this in the dream. What important truth does that teach us about Jesus? 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, Hebrews 2 verse 14, and Philippians 2 verses 6 and 7. I'll go back to our passage document here. We'll start with right here. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator between God and mankind, talking about people there, uh, the man Christ Jesus. And Hebrews 2 verse 14, since the children share flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, also shared the same flesh and blood, so that through death he could destroy the one who had the power of death, that is the devil. And Philippians 2, verses uh, 6 and 7. We'll highlight that one. Though Jesus was by nature God, he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed. Um, in other words, that he didn't, he didn't use his divine power for his own benefit during his time here on earth, visibly. Um, he did not use his divine power to, to simply avoid needing to sleep or being hungry, um, or to, you know, all of a sudden have a segue that he could ride around in Palestine on. He walked, he was hungry, he was tired, all that, right? Um, so he did not consider equality with God as a prize to be displayed, but he emptied himself by taking the nature of a servant. When he was born in human likeness, and his appearance was like that of any other man, and that passage goes on. But what we had said, um, Jesus was not God pretending to be a man. Um, and these passages kind of reiterate that, that at the same time as being God, he is also true man. He is a real human being, um, which means that he's a person just like you, that he has been tempted just like you at all the stages in life, just like you. And at the same time, his record was perfect that he's a true human being, which means that he also had the obligation to live up to God's law perfectly. Um, because God is above his law, <laughs> humans are the ones who are under it. So number seven, we need a savior who is God. What did Jesus need to do that only God could do? 2 Corinthians 5.21, John 1.29, and Hebrews 2 verse 14. So the next one on our there we are. Second Corinthians five verse twenty-one. 
God made Jesus, who did not know sin, to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In John 1 verse 29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All right, so two things that you notice. Um, this Lamb of God, what does he do? He takes away the sin of the world. If he's not God, he can't do that. If he's only a human being, then he's going to die and suffer for his own sin, but nobody else's. Um, God made him to become sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that kind of says the same thing, that, um, that Jesus had to be true God in order for his death to count for you and me. And uh, the next one is right up here. We'll see if we can zoom in there. Perfect. That's a nice and big. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Since the children share flesh and blood, he also shared the same flesh and blood, so that through death he could destroy the one who had the power of death, that is, the devil. All right, so he, by his death, he actually accomplished something, something of benefit and value, um, that is, destroy the devil and his power. So number seven, we need a savior who is God. What did Jesus need to do that only God could do? Um, what did he do? He lived a perfect life for us and have his death come for all people. Um, so you and I are born under law. You know, God makes the laws <laughs> and we live under the laws. And, um, but we don't live up to them. We talked about this back in lesson one when we talked about the natural knowledge of God and the revealed knowledge of God, that both the natural knowledge and the revealed knowledge of God, that is nature and conscience and the natural knowledge, and the Bible is the revealed knowledge of God. Both sources tell us what God expects and what God demands. Both sources tell us that there will be consequences for breaking God's law, um, and we can't live up to it. So Jesus is perfect because he is God, and he did live that perfect life. And then his death, because he is also true God, um, his death is of value, of infinite value and worth. And so his death can count for all people. Your death or mine would only count for us. Um, that's what God talks about in, in Psalm 49. I don't, I don't think we'll have that one tonight, but... Um, Psalm 49, God talks about the fact that no person can give his life for another person. That is to say, no, no sinful person can have their life take away the sin of another person. So Jesus had to be true God in order to live a perfect life and have his death come for all people. Which gets us to our first term. We call it Jesus' active obedience. Um, this is the idea that Jesus perfectly, I'll add a word here because that, that helps. Jesus perfectly and actively obeyed God's law for us so that God would see us as perfect or righteous. So his active obedience is actively obeying the law, actively living up to all that God demands. Okay. Number eight, 
So far, so good. Any questions, you can uh, text or contact me at pastorhagen at icloud.com, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N, uh, or texting would be 419-262-8280. Um, number eight, we need a savior who is also a true man, a true human being. Why did Jesus need to be a true man? I think I've, I've touched on a few of these reasons already, these next two. From Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. Um, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son to be born of a woman, so that he would be born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law, so that we would be adopted as sons. Why did Jesus need to be a true man, a true human being? Um, so that he would be born under the law. Exactly as we, we talked about already, uh, that God makes the laws, God is above the law, God defines what is evil and what is good, and we, his creatures, are living under the law. That is, we have to live up to the law, and we are obligated to obey it. And the other passage, uh, John 19, verses 30 and 33, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. But when they came back to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Um, and so the other, the other thing here is that God doesn't die. He can't. He has no beginning. He has no end. Um, death is a result of sin. And God is not sinful. He is holy. Um, so God cannot die. So Jesus had to be human in order to be able to die. So the divine, divine nature and the human nature each contribute what is unique to being human and divine. Um, he had to be human in order to live under God's law. He had to be human so that he could die. Um, he had to be God so that he could keep that law perfectly. And he had to be God so that his death could count for all people. Um, Maybe I'll add that here so you can see it on the screen at least. Got to make that a little bit bigger. God. He had to be God so that he could keep God's law perfectly and have his death apply to all people. All right. Which kind of gets us into our, our other term here that we talk about. Um, we talked about his active obedience, where he actively obeys God's law for you and for me. And then we talk about his passive obedience, where he, Jesus, willingly endured the suffering of and torment of hell that was deserved. Um, and he did this. He um, allowed himself. He allowed himself to be tormented. Um, he laid down his life and he allowed himself to, you know, suffer all the pain of sin. That's, that's the idea of passive, that it happened to him, um, that he received all the punishment for sin, as opposed to his active obedience, where he does all the good that God's law demands. Okay. Um, so active, allow, 
or active, <laughs> he actively does these things, and passive, he allows these things to happen to him. So if you're following along in the workbook, um, there's a nice little diagram that's also in your catechism, I believe. Um, when you talk about the person of Jesus Christ, on the left-hand side, he is called a man. He has a human body and soul. He does human actions. This tells us that he is true man. At the same time, he has divine names. Um, he's given you know names that only apply to God. He has divine attributes, which means he does things that only God can do, um, or he has characteristics that only God has, rather. Um, he does divine works, which means he does things that only God can do, such as you know walk on water and raise the dead. Um, and he has divine glory. And we see that like on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, where his face shines like the sun and his clothes are whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. That is a glimpse of his divine glory that he allows to shine through, so to speak. And those things together tell us that he is also true God. And so he is both true man and true God through the miracle of the virgin birth. And in that virgin birth, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. We call that the Incarnation. Uh, you see right in the middle, C-A-R-N, carn. Um, like you go to the Mexican restaurant, you order carne asada, or our word carnivore um, means somebody who eats, eats flesh. <laughs> um, that's the same, same idea here, that carn meaning flesh. So incarnation means that God became in the flesh with us. Okay, so incarnation is when the Son of God um, became human within the womb of the Virgin Mary nine months before Christmas. Um, so that he could, you know, so for the purpose of, as a human, and as, well, for the purpose of living perfectly under God's law, and yet being able to die for infractions to that law, as well as have his perfect obedience count for all people, and have his death count for all people. This tells us that Jesus Christ is true God and true man, our Savior. Any questions, let me know. Uh, I can text or email or write them down and send them in a letter. Um, I also receive telegram or singing telegram, although uh, nobody's taken me up on that, at least not yet. All right, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, an outline of Jesus' work. So now that we see who Jesus is, now we're looking a little bit more closely at what Jesus does. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, you can find that in your paper Bible if you're following along there. Um, it'll be on the screen here in just a minute. And the two things that we're going to really see is, first of all, the Apostle Paul outlined what Jesus did in his ministry and what he is doing now. And then secondly, a reminder that Jesus' work brings comfort to all who believe in him. Uh, Philippians 2, beginning, oh, right here. Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. We'll highlight that backwards. All right, never mind. Um, reads like this. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. All right, so there's a lot here about who Jesus is and about what Jesus does. All right, so number nine, uh, following along in your workbook. Um, <laughs> number nine, Jesus has always been God from eternity. Eternity means forever, you know, no beginning and no end. He has always been all-powerful. Oh, this is a terrible question. This is one that we'll ha we're on the we're on the first edition <laughs> right now, and um, and the way they phrased a few of these is a little suspect. Because what we're talking about here is Jesus never gave up the ability. Jesus never gives up his authority and glory and power. He always had those things, but he refrained from using them for a time. Um, he purposely refrained from making full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. So Paul clearly says that Jesus did not make use of some of that power for a time, uh, this would be Philippians uh, 2, verse 6. Um, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Um, and so together with that, why did Jesus... There we go. It's like we're editing on the fly almost. Why did Jesus refrain from using his power? Well, so that he could be our savior. Um, if he was walking around displaying all of his glory, first of all, no one would be able to come near him. Everybody would die um, because, because sinful people can't stand in the presence of holy God. And so he hides the fact that he is God. He refrains. He doesn't use all of his divine power, glory, and honor. But he gives little glimpses here and there. He... Um, he shows us, you know, in his miracles, um, when he walks on the water, he shows us exactly who he is. And, and this is one of those places where he never gave up that authority, but he did refrain from using it for a while, which is our next key term. And, um, and this is, uh, I have an entire podcast episode on this. Maybe we'll get the link for the show notes when this goes to YouTube. Um, Jesus humiliation. We're not saying that Jesus was ever embarrassed. Um, talking about a time, the time when Jesus did not make full use of his divine power, glory, and honor so that he might live and die for us. I'll have to send the uh, the editor some updates for when they do another printing of this of this book. Uh, so his humiliation is a period of time when when Jesus refrained from making full use and often use of his divine power, glory, and honor uh, for the purpose of 
being able to walk among people, being able to live among people, and eventually be crucified and die. Um, so he refrains from using his power. He basically hides the fact that he is God for the purpose of being able to die. Yeah, this is intense. So that's what, that's what we call his humiliation. Um, and, and it's a period of time. It doesn't get worse and worse. It doesn't get more and more um, refraining of use <laughs> because this is simply simply refraining from using his divine power, glory, and honor. Um, he is in his state of humiliation from the moment that he becomes incarnate all the way through his death. Um, and the, the final aspect of that, which one are we at? final aspect of that is his death on the cross. That's number 10. According to Paul, what was the final, you can change the lowest to final point of Jesus' humiliation, his death on the cross. Um, verse 8, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I'll bring that up here. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled him. There we are. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Um, that is the final aspect of his humiliation. And and Paul's like saying, "This is incredible. God, God didn't just say, oh, 'Oh, I'm going to go die for people. Um, just let it be, you know, a car crash. Let it be something something quick and painless.' No, Paul's like." He chose, he willingly chose to be crucified. Death on a cross. It's embarrassing. It's excruciating. That's even where we get the word excruciating from. Number 11. After Jesus completed his work, things changed. What did the Father do for Jesus? Um, this is the time when Jesus, again, makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. It's the exact same definition except now it's the reverse. <clears throat> Excuse me. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so after his death, Jesus again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor, which is the counterpart. The humiliation is from his incarnation, when he became human, all the way through his death. The exaltation is from when he becomes alive again and through eternity. The time when Jesus, once again, this is ongoing now, makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. Oh, pastor can't type tonight. Um, the exaltation began when Jesus came to life in the grave and continues to the present and for all eternity. You know, this, this is ongoing now and it's going to go on. Basically, Jesus brags about the fact that he is God. 
And that's not a bad thing for God to do because it's his right, because he actually deserves it. When we think about bragging, we're, we're thinking about taking all the glory for ourselves, especially when we haven't earned all that glory. When Jesus brags, he has earned all the glory and he deserves all the glory. And so he again makes full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. Talking about a period of time, not that he becomes more and more exalted, just like he did not become more and more um, in his humiliation. Um, it's just the time when he refrained from using all of his divine power, glory, and honor to the time when he again makes use of all his divine power, glory, and honor. If that doesn't quite make sense now, it will eventually. And if if you can hold that one in your mind and chew on it for a while, let me know if you have any questions because it plays a central role to our understanding of, of Jesus as well as our understanding of how does what does church life supposed to look like? <laughs> it all comes right back to this exact point, the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus. And, um, and we'll come around to it again. Of course, contact me with any questions. Number 12, reading in Matthew 28, Ephesians 1 and Romans 8. Now during Jesus' exaltation, what is he using his power to do? Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, sorry. Jesus approached and spoke to his disciples, saying, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and gather, go and make disciples from all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and by teaching them to keep all the instructions that I have given to you. And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, yeah, you may have noticed, therefore go and make disciples from all nations. Um, this is a relatively recent translation that was primarily published by um, and, and put together, translated by pastors in our synod and a couple of other uh, church bodies here in the United States. And there there are just a couple of minor places where they translate things poorly, I think. This is one of them, because the word there, the verb there is go and make disciples. Um, and we make disciples by baptizing and by teaching, in verses 19 and 20. So what is Jesus using his power to do? Um, well, he says, all authority belongs to him. As a result, go and make disciples and by baptizing and by teaching. So exactly what Jesus is doing now is he continues to build his church by encouraging his Christians and by bringing people to faith through baptism and through instruction. Um, Ephesians 1 verses 18 and following. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which Jesus, to which he has called you, just how rich his glorious inheritance among the saints is, and just how surpassingly great his power is for us who believe. There we are. It is as great as the working of his mighty strength, which God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God also placed all things under his feet and made him head over everything for the church. The church is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. 
And finally, so what is Jesus doing using his power to do today? Um, well, Jesus is seated at his right hand. That that's a, He's not physically in that specific location. Talking about his power, um, which is exactly what verse 21 tells us. Far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and above every name that is given. So Jesus has all this incredible power, and he's using it fully and frequently and often. Um, for what purpose? Jesus is head over everything for the church, for Christians. That Jesus continues to build his church and to govern history. That is, Jesus even restrains the evil of this world so that his church has an opportunity to grow. And finally, Romans 8 verse 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And so what is Jesus doing today? This gets down even to the nitty-gritty details of your life, that Jesus promises to use every aspect of your life to turn it into a blessing for you, um, and that his overall purpose is to get you to heaven, so that even if even if that means a little bit of pain and suffering now, or if it means that he's going to turn, you know, something that happened to you that was very unpleasant or um, unanticipated, um, he's going to turn that into a blessing for you. And that is his ongoing promise. All right. So Jesus works through us to spread the message of forgiveness. He guards and protects us in all things. Good little summary there. So following along in your workbook, uh, the humiliation and exaltation chart that you have there, that is also in your catechism. Humiliation, Jesus gave up the full use of his divine power, glory, and honor. He still had his power, glory, and honor, but he just chose not to use it. That's the important part. Um, he And... How did that play out in his life? He lived a humble and lowly life on earth. Um, lowly conception, birth and life, suffering, crucifixion, death and burial, even buried, you know, crucified with criminals and buried in a tomb that that would quickly be forgotten if not for the fact that he rose from the dead. And for what purpose? To redeem us, to buy us back. And his exaltation is the flip side of that. Um, when he, again, takes up the full and frequent use of his divine power, glory, and honor. Um, he, he never lost it, but he refrained from using it, and now he, again, makes use of it. And he lives in rules and power and splendor and power and glory. Um, and the, the main events that we talk about that, especially in the Apostles' Creed, are his resurrection when he becomes alive again, his Technically, that, that would be his vivification. There's the $30,000 word for the night, vivification, which is talking about Jesus becoming alive again in the grave. Um, so he, he wrote, he, let's see, where is it? Um, how do we say that? In the Apostles' Creed. Sorry, flipping some pages here. Um, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried period that is the end of that state of humiliation the state of exaltation begins with he descended into hell the third day he rose again from the dead he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of god father almighty 
So the very first thing that Jesus does after he becomes alive again in the grave is he, he goes down to hell and he proclaims the exact same thing that Pastor Hagen proclaims from the pulpit or from the altar on Sunday mornings. Your sin is forgiven because Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what Jesus proclaimed in the streets of hell. It, it was his victory prayed through hell. And um, except those in hell who rejected Jesus during their life, those in hell who rejected the preaching of the word uh, during their lifetime, they have no second chance. And so Jesus proclaiming that fact that he raised himself from the dead and that he had won forgiveness for those who believe in him, um, especially, <laughs> Jesus proclaims that in hell as a victory parade. And that victory parade is still ongoing today, not through hell, but through this world. That God's Christian church is really a victory parade of people making that same proclamation in this world that Jesus has won, that sin is forgiven, and that heaven is open. All right, so the descent into hell is the first part of his exaltation. Then he, um, he shows himself as having risen from the dead. He ascends into heaven. He rules at God's right hand, and he will come again in judgment at the end of time. Awesome. We'll talk about that on another day. I think we talked about that in the that comes up fairly often in our daily podcast as well. All for the purpose to assure us that we are redeemed. So any questions? Number 13. The order in the second article of the Apostles' Creed can be confusing and has led some people to assume that Jesus descended into hell after his death but before he came back to life. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. Though the Bible doesn't tell us the exact moment Jesus descended, um, like it doesn't put it on a clock, it, but we do know it happened after he became alive again on Easter Sunday morning, but before he showed himself to, to the other disciples. So that's about like a probably a six-hour time window. <laughs> so the Bible doesn't tell us the exact moment God does tell us through Peter why he descended into hell. That helps us understand why this took place. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and 19. Christ also suffered once for our sins in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Scooting on over. He was put to death in flesh, but was made alive in the spirit, in which he also went and made an announcement to the spirits in prison. Um, so basically, um, Jesus descended into hell to proclaim the fact that he had risen from the dead. And if you're watching on YouTube, um, you can check out the show notes and I'll link to a recent podcast episode that we had on that topic. It's one of my favorite topics to teach on. That's why um, I wish we had an entire lesson devoted to that, but then this would be like a four-year-long course. Anyway, any questions, make sure to contact me, Pastor Hagen at iCloud.com, P-A-S-T-O-R-H-A-G-E-N, or you can text me, 419-262-8280. Our question that we're going to wrap up with tonight. And you can um, think of this on your own and jot something down in your workbook. Um, look back through your notes from tonight, and that might be helpful. Why is it important for you personally that Jesus is both true God and true man? 
um, what reason or reasons, um, either what we had tonight or that are, you know, kind of the logical conclusion, uh, what reasons are especially comforting or, um, yeah, I guess especially comforting about the fact that Jesus is both true God and true man. Finally, your homework. Um, in your catechism, pages 148 to 154 and 170 to 177, um, we've got some terms there and then a little bit more reading in the catechism as well, because this is this is the you know the cornerstone of our faith really and and even if even if you're scratching your head a little bit and saying well this part's difficult pastor Hagen, i'm not sure i get it uh that's all right we'll come around to it again um but understanding this or at least having a a working vocabulary on this topic is very helpful for understanding why church worship looks like the way it does why you know church decisions are made the way that they are, why, you know, we aren't looking for necessarily all the glitz and the glamour of worldly success, because the life of the church is really going to echo the life of Jesus, humiliation before exaltation, where the church will always look like it is in weakness and on the verge of cracking and breaking <laughs> this side of heaven. But then after Jesus returns on Judgment Day, then the church will be in its state of glory. And you will see God's work in his people, in and among his people, for what it really is. Um, but this side of heaven, God's work is still hampered by our sinful flesh and hidden under weakness. So anyway, that is going to wrap us up. Um, make sure that I'll get the... I'll get, um, add the show notes, that episode about Jesus' descent into hell, and we'll get that up on YouTube and also link it at our website. And go ahead and check out our website, raisedwithjesus.com. I'll be putting up some quizzes there over the next couple of weeks as review for all of the lessons that we have of this course. And I want to thank you for participating. That is going to wrap us up. If there are any questions, let me know.